Please look with me at Romans chapter 9, beginning at verse 6. And uh, while you're turning there, I just want to acknowledge that there are a couple of, uh, I think, somewhat familiar faces um, who have been seated to my left over here, but who are now standing to my left. Jacob and Gwendy, who um, have been with us over the years. Wendy was here a couple of weeks ago. She came back. And Jacob, I saw yesterday at the farmer's market in Winter Park, and I said, hey, why don't you come and play tomorrow? Call Tom. And he did. And he looks very different. He looks, he looks cute, <laughs> handsome, grown up. I, I don't know. That's terrible, isn't it? Are you thoroughly embarrassed? Good. It's really... I hope you all understand and, and sort of get that it's an incredibly sweet thing for them to want to be here with us this morning when they're at home visiting their parents over the weekend. So thank you. Um, thank you for doing that, being with us again a lot. Okay, Romans chapter 9. Beginning at verse 6, we're uh, looking at God's word. We're continuing to work our way through this letter um, and uh, wrestle with this passage which deals with uh, some difficult things to understand, but some deeply, deeply encouraging, profoundly encouraging things for God's people. So read with me at verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Let's pray together. Father, um, we, we accept by faith because we have this reminder in front of us, this cross. We accept by faith that every word you speak to your people is a good word and a word designed at the end of the day to cause us to rejoice and marvel and be amazed. 
And so as we come to this passage again, grant us your spirit. Help us to understand it. Help us to take it into our hearts so that it might do the work that you intend for it to do in us to the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Let me uh, ask you a question as as we get started. Um, Have you ever had an experience or contemplated an experience that, that either was or would be, if it should come to pass, completely and entirely unsettling to you? You know, remember the old Carol King song, I Feel the Earth Move Under My Feet? An experience that sort of causes the tectonic plates to shift beneath you. I had an experience like that this morning. I was awake at 3.30 as I typically am. Those of you, I've shared this before, there's a, if you just want to know, there's a wrestling match that goes on uh, in my house anyway uh, at about 3.30 every Sunday morning. Well, then at about 4 o'clock, the power went out. The power went out. No lights. I do my final sermon work on Sunday mornings. I need my notes so that I can review my notes, so that I can, so that I can think my way through what it is that I, I'm, I'm feeling that God is constraining me to preach on Sunday mornings. I need light in order to look at those notes. I write out most of my sermon on Sunday mornings. I mean, I maintain enough eye contact with you. I think you know that. For you to know that, I don't memorize this thing and read it verbatim. But I do write it out, and it's a mnemonic thing for me. It's a memory thing for me, so that it's kind of there. I need light to do that. I've got to have power to do that. Right? So I'm I'm there in bed, and I'm... It's panic city. I mean, I'm in panic mode because, you see, my identity is all wrapped up in what goes on for the next 35 minutes here. Okay? Now, that's sin, and so this is confession. But I'm in panic mode at 4 o'clock. And about a quarter to five, after 45 minutes of trying to figure out what I'm going to do, Barb rolls over. And says, what time is it? And I said, it's a quarter to five. And the next thing she says is, as though she's inside my head, hearing this internal conversation, the next thing she says is, why don't you get a bunch of candles? Now, I don't even know if she knows that the power is gone. But she says, why don't you get a bunch of candles? Oh, good idea. So I get a bunch of candles. And I go sit at my little table and I start to work. And then when she gets up a little bit later, she brings out more candles, better candles, so that I can see even better. God created a helper for the man. (laughs) Okay. Now, I think, in fact, I am almost certain that something like that is coursing through the heart and the soul of the Apostle Paul as he writes this first half of this sixth verse. That emotion, that experience of being deeply unsettled by a deeply unsettling prospect. And the deeply unsettling prospect 
that the apostle is responding to in this passage is the possibility, the mere consideration that a word of God might fail. And why is that prospect so deeply unsettling for him? And why does he feel it's so important to take these next three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, to respond to essentially this question, has God's promise failed or has God's word failed? The reason that prospect, his promise to Israel, which we'll look at in just a minute, his word to Abraham, which we'll look to in in just a minute, the prospect that one iota, One jot, one tittle of a word of God, of a promise of God, if any of it should fail, what that means is that everything that he has said, leading up to the end of Romans chapter 8, might be susceptible to failing. Do you hear that? The possibility that this promise first made to Abraham This promise made to Abraham, which was for his generations, the generations that follow him, the possibility that that word or promise could fail is so deeply unsettling to Paul because it would mean that everything that he said through chapter 8 could be vulnerable to failing. With what confidence could he possibly say There is nothing in all of the creation that will ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus ever again. With what confidence could he possibly say that if he had the least suspicion that the word of promise made to Abraham had or might fail? You see how important this is? And that's why he takes it upon himself to answer this question. Has God's word failed? Has God's promise failed? And the thing he says right out of the chute is absolutely not. It's striking in the original. It's actually bad sentence construction in the original. Word order doesn't mean as much in Greek as it does in English. But even in this case, it's bad sentence construction because the first word in the original in verse 6 is not. Not. Not as it's translated, but it is not as though the Word of God has failed. Simply not as though the Word of God could fail or has failed. Not. Yet. Nada. Nine. No. It's emphatic. And so what he's going to do, as he makes his way through these next chapters, is essentially deal with that first question. There are a couple of other questions that he deals with. In chapter 10, he answers the question, why is it that the majority of Israelites don't believe? In chapter 11, he asks whether or not, he answers the question, which is asked of him whether or not God's purpose for Israel has failed and fallen, whether God has rejected his people forever. But all of it is predicated upon, precipitated by this first question. Has the word of God failed? And his answer is no. No. Now, this warrants a sermon in itself, and I'm not going to preach that sermon because we'll be here until tonight. But you see, what is at stake here is the integrity of the gospel of God 
which is for the Jew first and also for the Greek, chapter 1, 16 and 17. And what is also at stake is the God of the gospel, the gospel of God and the God of the gospel. Paul's whole theology is at stake here. Everything that he believes about God is at stake. Everything that he believes about God's gospel is at stake when it comes to this question. Has God's word failed? No. And then he goes on to explain why it has not failed and how it has not failed. So let's ask some questions of this text. First of all, first question. What is the word to which this passage refers? Or what is the promise to which this passage refers? What is in view here? Well, if you read through these verses, 6 and 7, um, in particular, but through the whole passage, it's, it's pretty clear, isn't it, that what is in view, uh, whatever this word is, it has specific reference to Abraham's descendants, to his seed. So while there's probably a sense in which everything that was promised to Abraham is in view, the original promise in chapter 12, the promise in chapter 15, which Abraham received from God, and because he received it from God, God credited that belief as righteousness, and so Abraham was justified. The promise of a a vast number of descendants. What's probably in view here is is actually Genesis 17. That promise, which reads, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Now, that echoes what was said in chapter 15 of Genesis when God promises him descendants more numerous than the sand on the seashore, stars in the heavens. That echoes that promise. But God goes on. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout all your generations. I'll establish my covenant with you, not just give you descendants, not just give you a seed, but I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout all your generations. So what's going on here? Well, you see, you have Paul hearing this question, this question that comes at him. Paul Here are all of these descendants of Abraham. All of these descendants of Abraham who don't, in fact, believe. Who, in point of fact, seem not only not to believe, but more positively have, in fact, rejected the very gospel that you're proclaiming as the fulfillment of everything that was spoken to Abraham in 12 and 15 and 17 and other places in Genesis. Paul, we we know the promise of Genesis 17, that God promised to establish a covenant with you and with your descendants after you across all your generations. Paul, is what you are saying, is the implication of this that the promise of God, the word of God, has failed. See, that's the promise that's in view, it seems to me. And again, Paul answers by saying, no, absolutely not. 
Well, then the next obvious question is, this is the second question. If it isn't failing, if it hasn't failed, how or where is it being fulfilled? In whom is it being fulfilled? This is the promise, 12, 15, but especially 17. Yet there are all these who are rejecting this gospel, which you say is the fulfillment of everything that's promised in the Old Testament. You're saying that promise, that word is not failing. Where is it fulfilled? How is it being fulfilled? And to this question, Paul gives a very clear, not always easy, but very scriptural answer. And that's an important thing to point out. The number of times that Paul cites the Old Testament in Romans 9, 10, and 11 represent one-third of all of the Old Testament quotations in all of his letters. One-third of all of his Old Testament citations are in these three chapters. As I said last week, he grounds his answer himself in the teaching of Scripture. And so to this answer, Paul, or to this question, Paul gives an answer. And it is first a kind of a negative answer in verses 6 and 7. It is not as though the word of God has failed. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are the children of Abraham because they are his offspring. A couple of words that are in the text. One is the word seed and the other is the word children. And what Paul is saying here is simply this. Not all who are the physical descendants of Abraham, not all who are the seed of Abraham are in fact children of Abraham. There's a distinction, you see. There is physical Israel, but then there are the children of Abraham. And how do you distinguish between the two? Well, you distinguish between the two in this way. Physical descent and children of the promise. Children of the promise. And Paul then uses two examples to illustrate this point that not all who are the literal physical descendants of Abraham are, in fact, the children of Abraham. And the first is the contrast between Ishmael and Isaac. Isaac is mentioned. Ishmael is not mentioned. But Ishmael is clearly in view. The contrast between these two sons, Isaac who is the son of promise, and Ishmael, who is the son of the Egyptian woman, the birth circumstances of whom are highly suspect. Right? Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac. Isaac, a son born to a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman. Isaac. A son of promise. Isaac, a son who is the fruit of the intervening, extraordinary, 
resurrection power of God Almighty. Ishmael, who is the son of a fallen man's fallen scheming. A son produced, again, not by faithfulness, but a son who emerges in an environment of unfaithfulness. Isaac versus Ishmael. Now, be careful. Be careful. Don't draw the conclusion that I am absolutely certain many folks at this point in the hearing of the letter would have drawn. Well, of course. Of course it would be Isaac. Because Hagar was an Egyptian. Bad ethnicity. And Ishmael's birth circumstances were suspect. Be careful. Don't draw the conclusion that because Isaac is the son of promise and Ishmael is the son of the machinations of a fallen man, because he is the son of an Egyptian, he is the son whose birth circumstances are suspect, don't for a minute think that Isaac becomes qualified to be a son of the covenant, whereas Ishmael is disqualified from being the son of the covenant. Be careful about that. We don't ever want to say, this is practical pastoral application, we don't ever want to say that the right ethnicity is what qualifies you to be a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. If that were the case, Abraham would never have been a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. He was a Mesopotamian before he was a Jew. And we don't ever want to suggest that a person's birth circumstances would disqualify that person. Because then... What do you do with you-know-who? What do you do with Jesus, whose birth circumstances were highly suspect and an embarrassment to his adoptive earthly father who wanted to put this unwed pregnant mother away? My friends, let's not make the mistake of thinking that it is ethnicity that in any way constrains God to delight in me over somebody else. Let's never make the mistake that it is my birth circumstances that constrain the God of heaven and earth to take pleasure in me over somebody else. And to press that point home, Paul uses the next logical illustration. And that is the illustration of Jacob and Esau. See, this guy, Paul, is a smart dude. It's like he leads us into the trap and we hear the jaws of that trap slamming shut behind us. 
maybe I'm just preaching this to me. I mean, maybe I'm the only one in this group who thinks from time to time, another confession, who thinks from time to time that there is something about me that constrains and compels God to smile and say, you're in. Look, look, folks, it is something born in us, this compulsion to try to smuggle into the gospel something in me that explains why I'm in. I said to you last week, what the Apostle Paul wants to do in this passage is make a frontal assault on human pride. And he uses the example of Isaac and Ishmael to kind of draw us into his argument. And once he's drawn us in, the jaws slam shut and he presses this thing home with the next illustration, the illustration of Isaac, of Esau and Jacob. And you see the difference, don't you? You see the difference. The difference is striking. Same father, but unlike with Isaac and Ishmael, same mother. And unlike with Isaac and Ishmael, not two different pregnancies, but the Turner babies. One pregnancy. One pregnancy. Jacob and Esau in their mother's womb. And then he adds this further qualifier, doesn't he? Before either had done anything, either good or bad. You see, so that the explanation for why Jacob is loved and Esau is hated is not accounted for in any sense at any level with respect to either one of them. In fact, if you read the story, I mentioned this last week, there are ways in which Esau comes off as being far more gracious than does Jacob. But they both, they both are scoundrels, self-absorbed scoundrels. Esau squandering his birthright over a mess of pottage. Jacob swindling that birthright from his older brother. But you see what is being said here is that before either one had done anything good or bad, so that the difference between them cannot be accounted for in either of them. Same father, same mother, same pregnancy. And what was true of David, as David acknowledged it in Psalm 51, was true of both Jacob and Esau. In sin did my mother conceive me. From birth. From birth. 
This is the implication of it. Am I accountable before God? You can't account for the difference in terms of something that is in Jacob that is not in Esau or something that is in Esau which is not in Jacob. And so what is it that explains why one Jew is a true child of Abraham and another is a mere descendant. Jacob and Esau, one a true child, one about whom God says, Jacob I have loved, the one about whom, the other one about whom God has said, Esau I have hated. Understand this is covenantal language. Understand it is tantamount to God saying, Jacob I have chosen, Esau I have rejected. What is it that accounts for that fact? It is purely and simply God in his sovereign choosing and calling. You cannot find an explanation for why one twin son Jacob is loved and the other twin son Esau is hated. One covenanted with the other rejected. You cannot find an explanation for that apart from God's sovereign choice and calling. That's what Paul is saying here. And earlier in the passage, he has used the example of Isaac to illustrate who it is who are the true sons and daughters of Abraham. And it is those who are according to the promise. What does that mean? I'm going to encourage you to look very quickly at Galatians or just make a note of this passage. What does the apostle mean when he says that? He's referring to those who have believed the promise. And the promise is the Christ. Verse 16 of chapter 3. The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Christ is the summation of this promise. And the children of the promise are those having been chosen by God in the mystery of His providence, having been called by God out of this condition in which both Jacob and Esau found themselves, being called by God, being recreated in the same way that Isaac was supernaturally, powerfully, by the grace of God, by the mercy of God, created, yes, through a man and a woman, but not without divine intervention. Who are the children of the promise? They are the ones who are chosen and they are called and they embrace Jesus Christ as the summation 
of everything that is promised to Abraham and across the rest of the Old Testament. It is all grounded in God's free, sovereign will to choose and to call. That is what distinguishes mere descendants from true sons and daughters of Abraham. It's God's free, sovereign, choosing His mighty, powerful calling in summoning people out of darkness, out of bondage, into the light and life found in Jesus Christ. Here's the challenging thing, right? Leads to this inevitable question, doesn't it? You'll notice the sermon title. Don't say it. You don't want to say it. You don't want to say what Paul had heard, what he anticipates hearing as he writes this letter. You don't want to say the thing you're inclined to say at precisely this moment. You don't want to say That's not fair. That's not just. And the reason you don't want to say it is simply this. You don't want justice. You don't want justice. If you or anyone else were to stand before God and say, give me justice, give him justice, give her justice, you would not want to hear the answer and you would cry out, give me mercy, give me mercy. That is what David cries out for in Psalm 51. He doesn't ask for fairness. He doesn't ask for justice. He asks for mercy. Because in the presence of a just and holy and righteous God, to whom and for whom justice does in fact matter, the administration of justice for the whole of humankind, would mean this. No one is saved. No one. We are like lemmings, friends. You know what lemmings are, right? They're these soft, cuddly, furry little animals that have this internal mechanism, this internal wiring that drives them to destroy themselves? Do you see how God impresses in the creation, presses into the fabric of the physical world, lessons for us to learn? Who are the lemmings? We are lemmings. We are not furry, innocent, white little creatures. I so wish 
that those waters that I applied to my granddaughter could wash away the guilt and shame and the power of sin. It can't do it. Give her enough time. She will show you what is inside her. Jeremy and Cheryl. Mallory and Tommy. Brandon and Jennifer. David and Tara. I hate to be the ones to break the bad news to you. But they are vipers in diapers. And give them enough time, and what they are born with will manifest itself as being unrighteous and unholy and ungodly. We are not white, furry, innocent little lemmings, but we do have within us a nature that is prone to evil and slothful and good that is inclined from its very earliest moments to reject any and all authority, that is inclined from its earliest moments to sing Frank Sinatra's famous hymn, I did and I will do it my way. And a holy, just, and righteous God were He to administer justice and true fairness, the result of that would be there would not be a Christian, a believer on the face of the earth. The whole period of history between the fall of Adam and the flood is there in your Bibles to show you what will happen if God in grace and mercy, a grace and mercy that is extended to the whole of humankind if God does not restrain what is in us. Don't ask for fairness. You see how Paul answers the question. It doesn't resolve some of the tension, some of the wrestlings of our hearts, But it is a sober reminder to us that this is about mercy. That when God is pleased, for reasons I'm not sure you or I will ever understand, when God is pleased to rescue this lemming and this lemming and this lemming and to allow others to persist in their suicidal mission, there is one explanation for it, and that is mercy. God, in his wisdom and in his sovereign, free purpose, exercising Mercy, in the case of some. Look, I've been at this for 40 years. I've wrestled with this at an emotional level for 40 years. I want everyone to be saved. So did Paul. But clearly, not everyone will be. 
And the only explanation for why some are is the mercy of God who chooses, calls, and entrusts those whom he has chosen and called into the safekeeping of Jesus, their Redeemer, Deliverer, and Savior. Tis mercy all, immense and free. For, oh my God, it found out me. That is the cry. That is the cry of a Christian. Me. Me. Why? Me. You come to this table. You come here. Not because of your ethnicity. Not because of the circumstances of your birth. Not because of your record of deeds. You come here to this place and to this table because of mercy. The mercy that loved you, chose you, has called you, and has given you Jesus to be your great liberator. As we come to this table, may I encourage you that we seek by God's grace to be people of deep, deep, gratitude and thanksgiving. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus,